right, welcome back everybody. Welcome to the followers episode number oh, I forgot 48. what episode it was again. Forty-eight. Exactly what I was thinking. Thank you, Murph. And today we had a very special guest. We had Rob Pacey from the Pacey Performance Podcast on. And it was super interesting and really good to get someone who's so far ahead of us in the podcast game. But seeing him come down, he was a really nice guy, really great to talk to, really down to earth, and some really, really interesting insights. What what really struggled for me was no matter how kind of technical we went into detail on, his answers were always still very simplistic. So he always brought it back to the basics quite well and kind of had actionable points, which was awesome to hear from a coach and just from someone else in the industry. What about you, John? Well, he's, what, 300 episodes ahead of us at the time of recording this. And even though we put out one weekly and he puts out one weekly, we are going to catch him. I don't know how the maths <laughs> of that works, but we are going to. Lay down the gauntlet re- now. We really wanted to get Rob on because he did a survey with all of the... British performance staff, but essentially people who work in SNC in Premier League, Championship, League One, all the way down soccer in England, and to see how much they earn, what their route to the job was, what realistic things people need to know if they do want to go down that route. It just gives a really good breakdown, both in terms of what was in the report, but also anecdotally from his own experiences of going that route himself and from interviewing numerous coaches that have dipped in and out of that whole world. Yeah. It's good to see we're not the only non-millionaires on the list as well. Yeah, we're along with that. <laughs> yeah, really interesting to see. I suppose a lot of things you'd kind of assume in your head, but when you see it on paper, see the exact percentages, it makes it a lot realer in my mind anyway. Yeah, the the route to the job or how people got their job is probably the most interesting bit. But when you think about it, oh yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, hope you all enjoy. So Rob, when it comes to podcasts and you're probably the OG at this stage you're up there with Iron Radio and they're near 1000 episodes did I see number 347 yesterday it's a far cry you're about 300 ahead of us I think <laughs> I don't know about the OG but yes yeah 340 something yeah recorded up to 352 I think yeah you probably started before it was something that was well known or I, I do this podcast people are like you do this what yeah it was it that was exactly what I got it was you want me to do a what you want to write an article no, 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 no! It's not an article. It's it's me and you actually talking. How mad's that? Like two people actually talking, but yeah, it was two thousand and thirteen. Back in two thousand thirteen, and people didn't know what podcasts were. There was one in the UK, or one like sports performance were in the UK that I knew of. It was Brendan Chaplin, who runs the Strength and Conditioning Education and the SNC Level Four certificate, and he was working out of Leeds Beckett, which is. Leeds Beckett University, which is half an hour from me. And he teamed up with Nick Grantham, who you might have heard of Nick. I think he works he works at Newcastle now. And they kind of double teamed, a, a tag teamed a, a podcast. And I just thought, I could do that. It's cool that I could do that. And just still blogging my way through. And that was, yeah, December 2013, recorded on my phone. Old, probably an iPhone 4 or something horrific. And um, yeah, just got people I knew. So it's been a long road. Everyone else is just copying you now. Well, that's, mm. you said that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and you started off like you you were a semi-pro player at some stage, were you, in soccer? Yeah, I was actually professional. So you've what done me, I could give me a little, a ball, and I've just knocked it out of the park. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, so I, I was, I did my first year at A-levels. So I thought my time had gone. I was coming to 16, all the players that I'd that had done well at the time had got signed for various different clubs, and I was stuck at my high school doing sixth form college and doing my A-levels, and I remember 
the I did PE is one of my four A levels that I took, and she, she was going around the class like, "What does everyone want to be?" There's probably only ten or eleven of us on the on that um, physical education A level, and I said, "I want to be a professional footballer," in front of everyone. It came out of nowhere, and she was like, R- "Right, okay, um, who do you play for?" And I was like, uh, "It was a team called Wakefield and Emily." And they were in the Unibond Premier League, which was probably tier eight. So, like, semi, the, the bottom level of semi-pro, it was like 50 quid a week job. And I was playing their reserves at 16. And she was like, okay. And everyone in the class kind of, like, shrunk with embarrassment that I'd said that. And it just came out of nowhere. And I thought, yeah, I actually do. I actually do. And then a year later, I'd signed as a youth team player at Doncaster Rovers, who were in League One at the time and had got two consecutive promotions. And was there, yeah, three, three and a half-ish years. Sounds like one of the teams that, remember they used to do the LDV Vans Cup draw on Soccer AM, were you in that? It, 100%. Yeah, 100%. It'll have been, we was, yeah, Wakefield Emily, you mean? Yeah. That, that, yeah, so we'd have been like FA Trophy. It was, it was not great. It was not great, but um, it was it was men's football, and I'd never played men's football before. It was always under 15, like work your way up, 14, 15, 16s, and all of a sudden at sixteen, I'm playing with men that have played a lot of non-league football, which is brutal. Like guys are playing, guys sorry, guys are working all day, working all week, and they come on a Saturday and just kick, kick lumps out of each other, and I'd <laughs> never I'd never been exposed to that before. So I think it was a yeah, it was a great thing to have a little bit of exposure to that. Were academies as much of a thing then, or was it kind of you're expected to go somewhere semi-pro to build your way up, or how did it work then? No, they were all academies. Well, academies were the top level, so Man United, Man City, Leeds United. They were classed as academies. In the lower level, so like a Doncaster Rovers, a, I don't know, Brentford, they were classed as Centre of Excellence. So if you're in an academy, you were doing very well. But everyone else is a centre of excellence. They'd probably have 12-year-olds upwards. Um, and you'd have a youth culmination in a youth team at under-18s. You'd have a reserve team and then you'd go, go into the first team. So there was that there was that stepping stone there. I just hadn't made it. Like I'd been for trials at Rotherham United, been for trials at Scunthorpe United and, and never got in. And that was when I was 14 and when I was 16. Um, and just never, never been, well, the, the classic line was, you're not as good as what we've got. So that was on your bike, see you later, um, try again somewhere else. And yeah, just persevered and in work at Doncaster. And ended up coaching at Doncaster then. That was one of your first kind of big S&C roles, was it? Yeah. So that was, that was a little, um, obvious, <laughs> obvious link to go back there. So I'd been a player there till 2006. July 2007 I got released ended up going back to do a sports science degree at Manchester Met which was through the Professional Footballs Association who thankfully paid for it um, who do really good work for ex-players by the way and they get slaughtered on social media and, and, and news outlets for various different things but they have an education scheme for, for ex-players and I tapped into that and got this degree sorted but then I went to work in schools and played semi-pro but I knew that I wanted to go back and, and be in that environment. It was not necessarily the job. It was about the environment that I wanted to be in. If I couldn't be a player, what was the next best thing? 
started to do some of my coaching badges and then ended up, I think I applied for an internship at like West Ham when internships were just for the academies, like I explained earlier, not many around, not very official and didn't get a, didn't get a call back or anything. And then because I knew the guys at Doncaster, same manager, same players from four or five years previous, they were like, yeah, just come in. It's fine. No problem. So I ended up going in for a day. A day led to me dropping a day at work when I was working in primary schools, doing some, just doing P lessons. And yeah, that ended up an official internship for a day a week. So I used to go on a Monday. It used to be, can I swear now, by the way? Not that. I'm... Yeah, we're quite. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, collecting piss, collecting piss from all the players, analysing the piss, um, throwing the piss away, cleaning the piss bottles, um, giving out drinks. Um, what else was I doing? Like setting up gym sessions and just talk, just being around the place and kind of lapping it up again and, and, and really enjoying it. And then I remember sat in front of a laptop and we'd had some uh, Polar Team 1 heart rate monitors and anyone that's done anything like that before any heart rate analysis the polar team one are like how can i describe it you know them you know when you go on holiday you go on holiday as a kid and you always come out with a big pencil you went to blackpool or you get to the coast you come back with a big pencil it was like having a one of them big pencils strapped to you like so stiff horrible uncomfortable terrible and i got taught how to plug these things in and a graph would come up, heart rate trace would come up, and we'd clip it. So, like, clip the warm up, clip the like small sided game, clip the eleven v eleven, and and see what heart rates were like across the squad. And I was like, I have absolutely no idea what I'm looking at here. It's just a squiggly line, and I blagged it for a few weeks as if I was yeah, we we know what's going on here, and said to the guy, I haven't done any of this at university. And he started laughing, started pissing himself. So he's like, of course you haven't. This, you don't do this at university. This is not part of the course. You learn this on the job. So that was a bit of an insight into how much relevance my degree was going to have on a full-time, potential full-time job in sport. Just briefly there, you mentioned the Professional Football Association. Is that something they do a lot? Is that kind of with a view to, okay, you don't make it as a player or perhaps you get injured and they try and set up some other form of revenue or, or life path for players? Is that when you finish or do they have an eye on players even going through their career to have some pretty like premier league they're probably making enough to survive afterwards but lower down the leagues are they like okay this isn't going to pay for you in your 40s and 50s or your children let's have an eye on something else here yeah so anyone listens to talk sport i I do pretty much every day and there's, there's this conversation around unions and one of the only unions around where no one actually pays a significant portion of their uh, salary to actually fund the union so from my understanding it's the premier league that fund a lot of the pfa of the players union and i think i used to pay something ridiculous like 75 pounds a year i only paid it for two years so i when i finished and it's kind of once you're a member you're always a member type of thing so no matter how much you've paid into it which was minimal and probably is minimal for everyone when you leave or you get or you retire or you um you get released from from full time football you can tap into this and i explored it and and basically i got my degree it was a part time degree at manchester met someone that they'd uh they'd partnered with on a sports science front 
and I think it was that seven grand was the was the degree, and um, it was all distance learning, which wasn't really a thing at the time. It was all on paper and DVDs, but sent through the post. And I think, yeah, no, it's ridiculous. This was, but this one long ago. You like, I, I laugh. It's funny because, yeah, you're getting workbooks like that that thick sent through the post, and this was two thousand and it's two thousand ten, two thousand eleven. Not that long ago, and it was ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up doing that degree, and it probably cost me about six hundred quid because I had to top up a little bit of the amount that the PFA wouldn't cover because I'd got to my allowance. Um, so that yeah, they paid for the rest. We we were in a lecture theatre. There was quite a few like ex footballers or current footballers, and they'd be all ask the, the the lecturer or the person, the admin person at the front was asking for the next payment. Make sure everyone's next payment's due. It's on. It's this much, and we're like. Not for us, thank you. <laughs> PFA had sorted that, um, which was great. And yeah, I tapped into them for, like I did my knee a couple of years later, um, did my MCL and needed a scan and was trying to get a scan here, then everywhere, trying to get it sorted super quick. And I thought, yeah, the PFA, I should get in touch with the PFA. Rung the guy who, who was the kind of liaison guy that I used to speak to for anything. He said, can you get to Warrington? I was like, absolutely. We were, my girlfriend was living in Manchester at the time. He said, I said, when, when do you need me to be there? Can you get here tomorrow morning? I was like, yeah, right, you've got an appointment. And it was just, they, they sorted it. They sorted the scan, got the results within a couple of days. And uh, yeah, that was, that was the PFA in a nutshell. So incredible organisation if you're on the inside, 100%. Yeah, that's interesting, like, because, you know, we have a very different structure to the main sports in Ireland here, both hurling and football, and it's obviously, it's generally looked after through your club, but then there is the Gaelic Players Association, which do sort some elements of courses and stuff, and links to companies and that for players, because obviously most of them need a job, because it's not professional. One of the big things we wanted to look at, Rob, was some of the realities of working as a strength and conditioning coach. Because everyone sees it as like, it's just, I'll get a job at my United, I'll spend my day hanging around with Rashford and Pogba. I'm sure like, they're making loads of money, so I'll obviously be making loads of money as well, and I'll be making them fit. It'll be great. Whereas realistically, there aren't a huge amount of jobs at the very top level. And as you start filtering down the wages, the work demands some of the working conditions and the job security aren't quite as brilliant as you'd often expect them to be. All very correct. So don't get me wrong, there's people out there who have got a lot more experience working in pro sport than I have, and more recently than I have, because I left in... Well, I left kind of... been in every day five years ago, six years ago. So a lot... I mean, it's fast, fast-moving industry, things change. But I think what hasn't changed is the, the the salaries that are knocking around. I mean, just one thing that I was talking about, one topic I was talking about to someone recently, I I, am, I um, applied for a job at Nottingham Forest in their academy in 2014. And I think it was between 20 and 24. And because I was traveling, I got offered the job, but because I was traveling from Huddersfield, which was quite a, a distance, probably an hour and a half either way, I negotiate or I was trying to negotiate the 24. Didn't end up taking it. It would just have been too much anyway. But that job has come up multiple times this year between, I think it's been between 22 and 24. So it hasn't moved since 2014. There's more, there is more jobs, don't get me wrong. There's more opportunities for people 
inner strength and conditioning capacity or sports science capacity than ever before. The elite, uh, the EPPP, which is the academy system that runs now, has created more jobs because if you're a category one or a category two club, you have to have certain members of staff on your payroll in the academy to hit your criteria to stay in that category. The higher you go up, the less money that you get paid from the Premier League, the more you have to put in, the better the facilities have to be, the more staff you have to have, etc, etc. So that has created more jobs. But yeah, sadly, the amount of jobs, sorry, the salary for the jobs hasn't particularly moved. Whereas the salaries of players, you can see it curving up quite a bit the last few years. Transfer fees are curving up. I assume yeah. like managers' fees are going up, whereas support staff hasn't yeah, pushed at all. We're, we're, going, we're, we're replicating a conversation I had literally yesterday with someone that's been in 15 years in a championship club and has left. Like In just general like national inflation, that money should be going up. It's not. Money coming into the game is going up, but that is not reflected. Players are getting more money. TV rights are going up, but that's just not reflected in staff salaries. It's just not. For whatever reason, is there a lack of understanding from administration of what these people do? I'd probably say yes. Um, yeah, there's so many reasons. We could be here all day to try to figure out or surmise what the situation is. But the fact is, salaries are not going anywhere. And there's internships, unpaid internships. I think is that's got better. There's not as much exploitation as there probably was four or five years ago. But still, I saw one this week, uh, Ipswich Town, uh, first team intern. And they'd done the right thing by calling it an internship when it was someone who's going through a undergraduate sports science degree. So probably a gap year. Probably Sorry, probably a sandwich year from a sandwich course but it was it was 38 hours a week um and then rick i think it's put in brackets required to do overtime should it be necessary or something i was gonna say 34 means 64 really never (laughs) never in a million years you're doing 38 hours a week not in a million years no one at a football club works 30 hours a week um for no money um i don't know what other if it gave another any other um benefits i don't know if it paid for a some sort of cpd or anything like that but yeah that's the reality you're doing 30 hours a week for a year for nothing and then there's like preferable working with um sports technology experience of working with gps this person could potentially be 20 years old is two years into an undergrad and he's ex- yeah it's just bizarre it's crazy it's crazy like you see you do see it in other industries but it is a little bit kind of better kind of control you see people like you know we're looking for a graduate uh just out of college with like sometimes like three years experience like what wait hang on a second you know those things don't line up but um i i do feel that it's particularly uh it particularly stands out in the snc industry that it is there's quite a lot expected of you to accept, you know, like from a working conditions perspective there, from just a remuneration uh, perspective there, um, that, you know, that you're expected to give quite a lot of time for pretty much nothing uh, at, at best. And in return, you get all this experience. But 
still you might come out of an internship year um or even two years uh, sometimes I've, I've come across people who've had to take two internships and then they start to be in a position to finally put themselves forward for that 20k a year kind of role and you're like where's like there's no attraction to keep you in this industry um but you end up doing crazy hours on top of it um i i, I don't I, i'm not sure uh, and obviously we're coming from different perspectives but in, in ireland from my perspective it doesn't seem to be getting better it's it just seems it just seems to plateau it like uh, if, we, if we don't uh you know if we don't cause too much of an issue here or if we don't kind of you know put our heads up, up above the parapet with what we're offering you know if we don't make it look like this massively attractive role that nobody's gonna you know say anything to us um what have, do you do you feel it's a, a little bit like that too or do you, do you actually think it is getting there is a, a significant i suppose improvement first thing i'll say i think it needs to be clear i i, I think this is not our not only our industry it's so many industries, but because we're in it, it's all about us. We've got, you know, everyone's on our back. Everyone hates us. It just, it's not the case. Like I, I saw a job, well, it's an internship advert for, I think it was a finance company in New York. And obviously, traditionally, that them industries, you're going to get abused, like literally abused. But it was an internship, full-time internship, and in brackets, um, the, what did it say? How did it word it? Was it a reverse internship where you oh, pay $15 an hour to be there? <clears throat> that, and that. Like, that is that. Them kind of things are out there. And them kind of things happen in strength and condition as well, where you're paying three and a half, four grand to do an internship somewhere under someone. It's happening. But is it getting better? Um, I'm not quite sure it is. I'm not quite sure it is improving. Um, but I think there's gonna be so, there's gonna be at some point where undergraduates do go into their undergraduate degree with more information of if I want to work in elite sport, there's probably not going to be a job out there for me. And they go in with a little bit more information. Hence, the salary report that I did was trying to arm people with the reality. And I've become, probably over the last, I don't know, five or six years, up until quite recently, quite negative on this topic. And it does nothing for anyone to just beat this topic down. So I took a step back and thought, okay, I'm becoming negative. That's not good for anyone. That just fuels this just negative environment that young practitioners are potentially getting influenced by so let's take a step back and let's actually get some reasonably objective data on it which is where the salary report came from and just to give armed people with more information more knowledge more power you can then have make a better judgment on what you signed up for do you want to do it or not because if you go into a university and you look on the prospectus and the one person that's made it to a, to work in a professional club over the last five years, boom, on the front, like the one person, the two people, it, and people get roped in by that. This would pay some, like I went to the, well, I worked at the University of Huddersfield. There was one lad who came through it and worked at Huddersfield Town. He was on the front, of course he was. And it ropes people in, but there's probably, at Huddersfield Town, there's what? In the, in the first team, there's probably 
three jobs for a strength and conditioning coach in the academy, maybe two. So you've got five in a you know championship club. Um, pretty a bad example because they set their academy up slightly differently. But they're the kind of numbers we're talking about. There's not hundreds and hundreds of jobs, but I think but university is going to get paid depending on how many bums they get on the seats. And that's that's nothing against them. That's just how the model works. But at some point, you'd think there's going to be a, a tipping point where people are starting to ask questions. And I don't think that is too far away. You've got some big people in not only our industry, but other industries, I hate to, hate, hate to use the word, but influencers, who are questioning university itself unless you're a doctor or a you know surgeon where you need to go to university but preferably stuff like (laughs) preferably yes exactly (laughs) but for things like sports science i don't know there's a tipping point somewhere i think as well hopefully anyway the tipping point will come from person who's been through one of these university courses and seen the job opportunities but creates their own path like jamie reynolds kind of comes to yeah. mind essentially by just yeah. going right well i i have the skill set and there's always going to be professional players who want to get better outside of their own training i can do this and he'd be the only snc really to come to mind that would actually be okay he potentially could actually command a huge salary because he has individual people who he knows are super wealthy providing them an individualized service so i think the catalyst is gonna i do think you're right in it being a tipping point very soon it'll just be very interesting to see what the next big avenue for snc is or how it goes there's more people doing that I mean, he's he's blazed the trail for that kind of route. I don't know if he ever worked anywhere near a club, but he got in with certain players and then other players went to him for training, for external coaching from their clubs. There's more people doing that. I mean, you go on Instagram and you'll see players working with random coaches from all over the world, doing some good stuff, doing some funky stuff, doing some weird stuff. Um, but yeah, in the UK, there's been more, and there's one recently left, uh, one of the top four clubs, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's got some relationship with players, and you know the the benefits of that probably outweigh the the negatives of of leaving pro sport. It's even like a consultant role journey for a pro sport yeah. club, where you can work with many different clubs, commanding a much bigger wage with much less hours you're actually working. So it's just watching the industry evolve. And the players want to be with you because they're paying out their own pocket. I mean, I was listening to a hilarious interview with Roy Keane and uh, Micah Richards, who are absolutely unbelievable together. But he was saying about Phil Foden, and Roy Keane was like, he's got a chef. He's got a chef. And they were loving that, in fact, he had a chef. Like, it wasn't negative at all. But I'm sure there's people like him who will have a chef, their own physio, their own masseur, their own coach. Like... If you're on 100 grand a week, why wouldn't you do that kind of thing? Why wouldn't you have people that you trust around you? I mean, that would be the first thing I did if I was on ever anywhere near. Get someone to cook your food for you. Happy days. (laughs) What a drain it is anyway. But it's these kind of things that are making, creating roles for strength and conditioning coaches to tap into if and only if they're happy to step away from the norm. And 95% of people won't because it's just not in the makeup. You would see a lot of NFL and NBA players who take an awful lot more responsibility for their own physical development. And that's possibly filtering across it. They will have someone, they look after my nutrition, they look after my physical, my team. 
will they support me in terms of sport but me as a commodity i will look after that myself yeah yeah and i think that that is very much a, a u.s mentality with the whole brand around these guys and how that's looked after and that's filtered into their performance as well and i think it is different slightly different because they have longer off seasons barring probably basketball so they're not allowed to contact the club in certain parts of the year, which mean they have to have external people because they're collecting bargaining agreement and all that kind of stuff. But it's it'll be the same. It's going to be the same here, if not already. The US system kind of lends itself well to it as well because there's usually a franchise player where you're like, right, pretty much the team's on your back. So in the off-season, you need to be preparing. Because I know, I remember reading an interview with Michael Jordan and his trainer, what's his first name, Grover? But he said that, like, I don't pay him to, to coach me. I pay him not to coach everybody else. So we had him just on his own retainer to come through. And it, that kind of stuff is really big in the US as well. Yeah. Just before we dig into the, the report there, it is also worth bearing in mind that so, like, I am lucky to have this. But my day job is as a teacher. Once I got that, I did my two years. I have my contract of indefinite duration. That's it. Unless I do something outrageous, I have my job till I'm 65. It is the complete opposite the higher up the chain you go because you're often tied to a manager or a head coach you're tied to the results and you can have them really fit strong durable everything but a couple of results go against your team manager gets sacked you're probably out the door along with him so that lack of job security is another thing you do need to be very much aware of when you're heading into it 100 percent, 100 percent, especially at first team level i mean first team level is a bit a bit like the wild west because there's no there's no EPPP, there's no, you don't have to have a minimum of a master's to work at a first team in a first team environment. If you want to work in the academy, you do. There's lots of boxes to tick. But if you want to work in the first team, you know, my mum could do it and no one would ask any questions. So it is a little bit like the Wild West. But um, yeah, if you do get, st- but then on the flip side, that's probably where you're going to make the most money if you're attached to a manager you potentially get on a coaching staff contract which is a two three years potentially and if he gets if you all if you get the manager gets sacked you all get cleared out but the chances are you're probably going to get looked after financially because you're on that kind of contract if you're a club member of staff where people move are moving around you managers are coming in they're potentially bigger clubs going to potentially bring in their own fitness coach you're probably always going to be a number two but you've got a little bit more security and you haven't got the you know big ticket salary that goes with it and then in the academy that's probably emphasized again you probably could be there for life unless you do something stupid you're not going to get the boot or that's what people thought until covid and people are getting made redundant and whatnot but yeah i suppose that you've got that's that's the sat that's the the hierarchy really academy relatively poorly paid unless you're a head of in a in a category one and then moving up the chain to first team and then first team with manager um risk goes up reward goes up yeah and that brings us on then to some of the various titles that we looked at in the report that like what people's actual job titles are whether that's been bestowed on them or they call themselves that i have no idea and what the real interesting thing is was the actual age group. Like you have more than half the people who filled it in younger than thirty five. Actually, way more than half younger than thirty five here. Yeah, two thirds, yeah. Yeah, like that is that because you get to an age where you're like, I need more security. I need more job progression. I need 
a bit more free time to look after my children, whatever it might be, or you just become a little bit burnt out, most likely a combination of a few. And don't, and don't forget, it's a new industry. Yeah, Like, when, when I was playing in 2000, well, at Doncaster in 2007, strength and conditioning wasn't a thing. I mean, we were in League One, yes, it was it was in the, in the Premier League, but I would say that champion, good championship, maybe, maybe a fitness coach, but yeah, even, what's that, 14 years ago, League One, we didn't have a gym. No gym. Like, we had, I think we had a bench press and a leg extension in the canteen, like in the corner of the canteen. <laughs> Seriously. Like, we we're, were at a time, this is League One, you've got lads on a couple of grand a week, so doing, doing well for themselves, who were coming in on a Monday, in the, in, still in the gear, they've been out on the Sunday and stinking a booze. And it, that that wasn't like applauded or people weren't patting on the back, but it was just like, oh, so-and-so's been out again. Jesus, what are we going to do with him? You know, it was that kind of mentality. So, and I think these last 20 years have been a shift away from that with the influence of foreign managers, with just the professionalism, with the amount of money that's put into the game. Not long ago, that was that was just the norm. Like, out a few times a week. So, we need to put it all into perspective. This is moving quick. This is moving super quick. And that's a reflection on the age of graduates and, and people, members of staff, that are in these roles. Do, like, when you, people talk about salaries, but you've got, I don't know, Club X in the Championship or League One advertising a job at 20 grand. And you've got, an, you know, it's, I don't know, one to three years experience. Does that person at one to three years experience actually have enough t- about them to earn 20 grand? People go, oh, 20 grand, it's nothing, like they should be earning more. It's a new graduate, they've got no experience. They go into a club to potentially work with players who earn a lot of money and are assets, big assets to the club. Like, should they be on twenty grand? I, I don't know, but it's it, there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect I think with them kind of conversations with what clubs are willing to pay, what expertise people have actually got moving into those. Just because you've got a masters, why does it mean that you have to earn fifty grand? Like, what have you done? So I think we need to be kind of, I need to be careful on how I kind of frame it because it is easy to get sucked into that. I've done five years experience. I've got a master's. Give me 50, where's my 50 grand? Why isn't it, like, why am I not getting paid that? It does become important there as well how we actually frame and measure experience too. Like five years of experience, is it five years where you were continuously building or is it one year of experience five times that you just repeated and didn't really evolve in any way? And and how you, as a potential employer, you know, find out the details behind that can be quite difficult as well to justify the money that's then paid afterwards. Of course. On terms of age then, like realistically, if someone is in mid-40s to late 50s and has 30 years of experience, they've probably spent about 10 years that being really poor and doing a lot of menial jobs. Whereas I think young graduates coming out now see the person at the top end, who's obviously very experienced and really knows their stuff, says, you know, I've, I've learned a good bit from them. I'm probably doing 
you know, stuff that's reasonably similar to them should I not be around the same? But they're forgetting the, the years of work that went into to getting there. And a lot of very small things that are learned quite slowly. But you can only go through them small things very slowly to get to the end position. Of course, you've got this super, super wide bank of experiences that you can, an experienced practitioner can tap into. And a young, a younger practitioner, probably I was, I was one of them at the time, thinking, well, I could do that. Like that's not super hard. What or super complex? What he's doing, but then mine was a very narrow experience, and all I'm seeing is what I'm seeing in front of me. Whereas the more experienced one, if something goes slightly different, he's got that experience. He's dealt with that before, and he can tap into the last ten years, last fifteen years to deal with that. Whereas I can't, I just see that thing that's in front of me because it's always a new, relatively, always a new experience. So it can be quite, you can get quite distorted in how you view a practitioner when you go see them. This is so simple. How are they, how have they been doing this? Like, there's nothing exciting here. It's just, you know, you make a judgment, but it's all the other experiences that are underneath, underlying all this, what you see to be made simple that I think for a younger practitioner is maybe hard to get the head around. And I, I think I fell into that confusing zone as well, thinking that I deserve more than I probably did. And just looking down at people's levels of experience going into jobs, or particularly those that filled in the questionnaire anyway, that the prior internships here, you're 14% at zero. I'm very surprised that people have gotten to a stage where they did not have an internship. I, I'm going to guess they're a bit further up the age bracket, yeah. but I, I don't know. Yeah. Now, 43% have one and 28% have two. I think I think two is a real nice number there because you're drawn from experiences from different areas. You can take, you know, you've probably learned from a few different coaches with different mentalities, different mindsets and different overall processes. And it helps you as a coach yourself kind of develop that a little bit more clearly and critically in your head. Those then who are up at three and four, I'm thinking, uh, why didn't you really stick at one of those clubs? But... Uh, yeah, what what did you find there on some of the internships? Was that surprising? Um, <clears throat> I thought like I'm probably with you. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm probably with you. Like two internships, if they're a year long, you've got two years. For you know that's probably a decent amount, and then at that point you're going, okay, what's next? If after two years I'm going, okay, what's next? Another internship. <laughs> I'm maybe thinking there's something not quite right there. Um, and four, if it's four whole years, like four full seasons, geez, like th- there's there's an issue there even with the person or I don't know, their ambition or ability to get a job. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, two is probably the what I'd go for into, if I was a young person coming through. That would be my expectation, two years. Um, but yeah, I think it's the... It's the um the qualifications that are that are the bugbear for a lot of people. Like two thirds of respondents had a master's degree, probably a lot of them master's degree graduates were doing internships, and I think that's the and probably unpaid internships. So that's the bugbear of a lot of people in the industry. I think that these highly highly qualified on paper people are doing protesting piss every day like I was um, and probably not been too happy about it because they've got well because people frame it as 50 grams of the debt when 
if you look at it, we're probably not looking at it the right way if you're classing it as debt. Um, you probably pay more tax is is the is what it is um, once you earn a certain amount. So that's probably reframing it slightly. And yeah, people think I've got a master's degree, therefore I I should be expecting a certain amount of money when, like I said before, it's that's just not the case. Not the case at all. But in terms of internships, yeah, pre two, anything more, yeah, I'd be questioning what's going on. I was surprised at the amount who had a master's degree and didn't have accreditation with any strength and conditioning body. I was very surprised with that. Like you've two thirds had master's degrees, but fifty seven percent, so nearly two thirds again, didn't have any accreditation at all. I'd have if if like okay, I'm not going through the English route, like because I'm here in Ireland, we don't have our own specific accreditation. But if I did a degree, I would certainly look to probably do my UKSCA before I would look to do a master's, or certainly alongside it, as opposed to do those and then expect to have a job without having either NSA, ASA, or UKSCA. That's something I find very surprising now. Yeah, I think in football, the UKSCA hasn't been adopted particularly well. And I think that's from its foundations as an organisation coming through the English Institute of Sport and been very heavily influenced by the people at the start when it was when it was first formed. I think that's changing. I think people are slowly coming round to the fact that it is something that is worth doing in football and I think that disconnect is is joining which is great I've done um, uh, questionnaires and and got responses from rugby league and rugby union their number in terms of how many people are accredited in terms of percentage is a lot well not a lot low I think it's in the 40 percent area so it's been adopted again more in them sports because of its foundations and foundations rooted in Olympic lifting or more traditional training techniques that maybe football is slightly different and the people in football see it slightly different. So I think there is probably a, a skew when it comes to football and that, but I think that is changing. But yeah, that's something that from the outside, you'd think, like, what is going on there? Like, that's not right. I mean, this got picked up by The Athletic, which was really good. There was a, an, an, a really well-written article, um, Adam Crafton, who's the, um, who, who was the, the journalist on it. And we went through it together, and he was like, no accreditation? Well, how did they know if they're any good? Well, kind of don't. You go on experience, you go on references... Like, like, is is a degree enough? I'm like, well, is it enough in anything? Like, if you're a, if you there's various different other industries where you're going to need something else rather than your, you know, undergraduate and a master's degree. But I just don't think it's appealed to the football fraternity because of, like I say, the foundations that it's been built on, and how relevant they think the training modalities that are taught. Are, are actually transferable to football it's always going to be a case of as well if if you did bring in something at premier league let's say okay everyone has to have their ukca and someone comes in without it and their team does phenomenally well everyone below that then just starts question i'm sure he doesn't have it like so why did the rest of us need to whereas if you had a few really influential snc coaches at a few top clubs that were winning and they all had it you'd probably just find them by proxy everyone started doing it then yeah i mean in the academy system i believe you have to have a basis accreditation, which is British Association of Sport and Exercise Scientists. You have to have that accreditation or be working towards it. 
and that's only in the academies. Again, looking at the academies, it's a wild west when it comes to first team, but it's a little bit more strict, bit stricter in the academies. Um, but yeah, as far as UKSA getting to that point, I don't think that's near there um, at this moment in time, unfortunately. But in the future, it may be. Um, no, I suppose my only thing on that was just like the the ease of access into into especially over the last years. You're going to have a lot of people who will be coming out with their qualifications or who were just finishing the thing. They'll be twiddling their thumbs. Uh, you know, like their careers are very much kind of pushed back. And you'd wonder how many people coming out with their S and C degrees. You know, whether it's uh, undergrad or or master's level, will possibly have no choice but to move away from from the industry um it's it's kind of something that i've spoken to a few people about uh, obviously anecdotally but that they're like you know i i had things lined up you know to you know once i finish this i get my experience and then i could move on and now they're like those opportunities are gone um but for some like trying to you know go through basis accreditation for some can be quite tough for uh ukca as well like i mean a lot of that stuff is you know it 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 just it's a little bit beyond what people are capable of especially over here i'm only speaking from an irish perspective here that you know it 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 just creates that awkward um you know it's it's not as straightforward but i guess it, have you any kind of thoughts on what on how to make that kind of uh transition through uh to to getting those accreditations any easier like even if we take from a nutrition perspective like that that that's a bit uh, uh complicated as well um you know if you're trying to like it can be straightforward maybe going through center if you're if your um course is accredited but if it's not like there's quite a bit of uh of paperwork there there's qu- quite a bit of proof which is often quite tough to demonstrate i guess but from an snc perspective how do you how do you demonstrate that quality if you can't really you know get there in person well i think the UKCA are actually coming up with a qualification i don't think i don't think it's far away that is going to bridge that gap between well nothing and accreditation because i think that i think that jump is big and it's probably too big and i think there's a probably a naivety to a lot of it because People just jump in and think they can smash it, think they can pass it first time. It's not the case. Like the 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 pass rate is so low because people just think they can blag it. And maybe it's, you know, personal trainers who have been through, I don't know, a weekend course and think that's the next step and just it's almost like a tick box, you turn up, you do a couple of lifts and you get passed. Well that's just not the case. Like it is pretty rigorous. Um for various different reasons and but I, but I think that bridging that gap between nothing and accreditation is super super important and I think that is coming um and I'm not speaking on their behalf but I know that it that it is and I think that will be a gateway for people to get on the ladder show at least some sort of competence but will also give people who are working as PTs that will give them a point of difference that will help the strength and conditioning industry try and manage all these people who are saying they're not their strength and conditioning coaches when they're just a PT because they want to differentiate themselves. So I think that will be a big step forward. And if you're working in David Lloyd gym and you are doing eight hours a week with a few clients and you're calling yourself a strength and conditioning coach, 
when this starts to hopefully filter into the fitness industry, that person will be expected to have a level two in strength and conditioning through the UKCA. Now, well, anyone can do it. Again, you mum as an example. Mum could say she's a strength and conditioning coach with no one about an eyelid. So I think that is the next step. I mean, it'll take a little bit of time to filter in, but I think that is going to be a big step forward. I'd like to see... I'd like, obviously, logistically, I haven't put a lot of thought into this, but as an idea, it'd be great to see something like the UK, the UKSCA um, involved in the internship program. So, for example, like there's so many people doing unpaid internships, it'd be great if they could have that year either count towards their exam or working under an accredited coach so they could come out, okay, fair enough, you've done a year, you put the work in, you've been unpaid, but at least you have your qualification or step one of your level two or something along those lines. Obviously, it would take a lot of development, but I think long-term would it be a great system for the industry. Again, I'm trying to speak for them here, but Sorry. <laughs> I think... No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's for me to, me to manage what I'm saying. I think there is a portfolio part of that qualification that I mentioned, which potentially will help with that, I think. I think that's what's coming. I think that's what been what's needed. I think that's been what's been asked of people in football like I'm not going to coach Olympic lifting with my footballers but I want to show my competence in a different way can I do that through a case study can I do that through a portfolio can I do that via you coming in to watch me all these kind of things have been proposed and I think that will be the way forward to be able to show competence without just turning up and doing the accreditation that's going to pass or fail me on Olympic lift yeah definitely that would be, be my thoughts on that, and I think that will come. It has to. bit like the apprenticeship style model. Yeah, I think so. And that's what, ba- I mean, bases, not that I've been through it, but I believe that that's how they do things uh, in terms of a portfolio. And you'd work under someone who's basically accredited. And I think that would be the system that would be favourable, especially, again, for those in football who are questioning the applicability of the assessment for the athletes that they're working with next bit i want to touch on rob is probably what i found most interesting in the overall report is how people actually got their jobs that fascinating the thoughts of there's a job advertised on i don't know, say i'll go back to my teacher on educationpost.e i'll apply for it i'll get an interview hopefully i'll get the job i do that maybe five times and i end up getting the job whereas like from knowing obviously other PE teachers and all of the other subjects they teach, the amount of people who actually see a job advertised, apply for it and get it, is so, so, so few. It's always, I just call into the school one day, they were short someone for a few hours next week, I kept coming back, two years <laughs> later I'm on full hours. And that's how so many people actually get their job. The only time you may actually go for one that's advertised and get it is when you've about five years of teaching two hours away and you're looking to move close to home. That's when people actually get them. I've even noticed here now from talking to people, younger people who are going for jobs, in Ireland it has to be publicly advertised, it has to be, majority go through education posts. If it's advertised in May, that's someone who's been working there for a year and it's being re-advertised because it has to be, your chance to get that or nil. June, half and half. August, the principal is scrambling because he wasn't able to fill it last June or <laughs> someone in his school has gotten a job somewhere close to home and he now needs to fill that really, really quickly. And being aware of that going in, Helps your confidence and everything so much. Oh, I didn't get that job. It must have been a terrible interview. That job was gone a year ago. Relax. It's not down to you. You found reasonably similar in something like this. Not to the same extent. But people who actually apply for a job and get it doesn't happen all that much. 17%, I think. Yes. 
Yeah, so the the survey, this is a really this is a really interesting one. Again, this is the most for me the most fascinating part of it. Were, was I surprised? No. Was and a thing that I need to reiterate again. Sorry if I'm going over all ground here. This is not just our industry. This is not just trend and conditioning. You can go anywhere and there'll be a similar picture. It's who you know, it's people getting you in, it's people putting a good word in. It's everywhere. My wife got her job because her friend got a new role at a new place. Leah, do you need, Do you know anyone? Oh yeah, I know Charlotte's looking for a new job. She's in. She had an interview, boom. No one else interviewed, got the job. Thank you. So it's all them kind of things. It's everywhere. And she doesn't, she's nowhere near strength and conditions. She designs children's playgrounds. So it's it's the obscure, exactly, the obscure of the obscure, this is happening. So it's, yeah, 38% of people got their current role through recommendations, so no publicly available job advert. 17% through club recruitment, through a publicly available job advert. Of those 17%, how many actually knew someone there and went, can you put a good word in for me? Probably quite a few. Yeah, how many of them... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So very few went in cold with nothing and got a job, I would suspect. And then one thing I will put a little star next to as I say this, 1% got offered a position after their internship slash placement. And that's slightly misleading because that wasn't an option on the survey. That was classed as an other. So someone put someone wrote that as an other another way they got their their current role. So uh, quite a few of them could have been uh, put put under promotion. Because if I was answering that, I'd look at that as a promotion from intern to assistant or whatever it is. But someone's actually specified that they got offered the position after the placement, so slightly misleading. But still, in in future adverts that is going to be a uh, an option on there because i think that's quite important to know how many people actually got jobs offered after internships but yeah fascinating little piece of uh, of info and 34 percent of people got promotions so i would say like you said a good deal of those were internships that turned into full-time roles correct yeah and only three percent move with managers now just looking at where they actually came from I'd say if you were to focus primarily on the actual Premier League, I'd say that would be much higher. But as you go down, there's probably less moving with managers. I don't know. That's a bold statement. Yeah, yeah no, no, that's, that's probably right. I mean, the thing that we need to remember is the people that answered the survey, there was no directors of in the survey. And they're probably the most likely to move with a manager. Maybe not a director of, maybe a head of fitness or fitness coach or someone from the country that the manager comes from. But I can guarantee none of them will have, have um, answered this survey. Guarantee. Because the average salary would have jumped very much <laughs> if those kind of people would have answered this survey. Probably not even allowed. Like we we've been in contact from a few from professional clubs and like they send us this big long list of not allowed to ask about this, 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 or this. So I would assume they're not gonna like oh there's a there's a questionnaire I'll just click on and give all this information too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean I did contact a couple of directors of who were 
thank you for sending it. It's not something I can do. The club don't want me to do it. Well, do you think the assistant is asking the club whether they're going to do it? No, they're doing it anyway. But the direct, are the directors of invested in it enough to be able to provide that information for the betterment of younger practitioners? Probably not, because they're not pissed off that they're getting shafted for salary. Um, is it on their radar to spend? I mean, I filled it in. It takes 20 seconds. It's all tick boxes. So time's probably not an issue. So, yeah, it was a little bit frustrating, but it's it's the nature of the beast when you do something like this. People aren't going to want to aren't going to want to fill it in. Um, but yeah, we didn't we struggled to get directors of unfortunately. Was there many just on the report it might it's kind of a niche question now you may not have actually even looked into it, but for that promotion section, was there many or an option for people who were maybe coming to the end of their playing career and just maybe shadowing as an SNC or just transitioning into that role? Just maybe without any qualifications? Yeah, no, there wasn't. Um, there wasn't, unfortunately. And I... Hmm. I'm just trying to think if, if I can actually think of anyone. There's one particular person who came straight out of playing and, and went to be a fitness coach. Don't think he's got any qualifications. Um, but no, I didn't. But I can't think of any one that I would know of who that's happened happened to or happened alongside, especially getting getting a paid role. And bear in mind, this was only for people who were getting paid. So this was not an internship. This was, interns were not in this because I thought it might skew it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely skew the salary metric, all right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. 20,000 zeros. <laughs> yeah, even though interns did fill it in. Even though on every page it was like, if you're not getting paid, do not fill it in. Intense fill in. And just looking down at like, realistically, salaries aren't unbelievable as you go trickle down a little bit and job security isn't great. So people either to supplement their salary, start working some kind of other job or run some kind of other business or look to transition their way into another area. What are some ways you've seen people do that? I know you've done it. Um mm. I've done a tiny bit with uh, Kieran Dealey and his Dealey Sports Science. He's looking to use that to to supplement alongside a, a full time job. You were on with him one day as well. Yeah, it's brilliant if you've worked at Man United and Robin Harp is doing something kind of like that at the minute. If you've said, "Yeah, five years at Man United, won a Premier League, a Champions League, and now I'm here to coach your team," like that's a brilliant advertisement for you. If you haven't been at a very elite level or you haven't built a profile, it is that bit more difficult to build a side stream or side business or transition onto a new type of business like that yeah i suppose it is if you want to still if you want to work at elite level because maybe elite players aren't going to take you seriously if you've not worked at a similar standard to what they have however i know one fantastic example of one guy who did i think he was an assistant at a club in london now he's working with lots of different premier league players england players so he's got something that they've tapped into but i think if you look into earn some extra cash and you've done an internship at I don't know Brentford I don't know why Brentford keeps going to my mind but Brentford when they're in the championship or league one and you want to earn some extra cash why not work with a semi-professional football club doing some pre-season programming for them or I don't know Janet the accountant who earns 70 grand but she's overweight 
she wants to pay £60 an hour to a personal trainer. Well, if I'm Janet the accountant, I'm pretty quite impressed if someone's worked at a professional football club. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it sounds cool. So I'd rather maybe rather pay someone who's worked at a pro club with players than a PT that's worked in David Lloyd for 20 years. I don't know. I'm just having a little think, but there's loads of options. And But I think what holds people back is people's ego to want to work with the elite of the, the elite. And as Des Ryan says, and has mentioned many times when I've, I've spoken to him on various different mediums for the podcast or masterminds or whatever, and this is his, this, this is his language, there is a, there's a position in every parish. There's a posi- conditioning coach position in every parish. And that's, that, I could not agree more. We, I live in a, I don't think it's even a village, there's probably 50 houses, and every Wednesday night, there's a class across the road, and they do a fitness session. And it's a random guy that's put leaflets through the, the door. And there's middle-aged men, middle-aged women, older men, old women who turn up there and pay five quid for 45 minutes. Like, he's doing all right. He's doing all right. They're probably, I don't know, how many did you get? 15, 16 people in a tiny little village like ours paying a fiver. Decent, not bad hourly rate that. I mean, you can't, it's not particularly scalable. But if you're, if you if you you know, earning a very, very small, if you're earning a below average salary on, based on this report, and you're doing that a couple of times a week, happy days, happy days. Not elite level athletes, but you're in front of people, you're engaging with people, there's lots of different skills that you're actually developing that are not, you know, not. but you can't put it on Instagram and say that you're working with a, a top pro, a top elite pro, but you're getting money in your pocket. Yeah, two things there. I, I first on with maturity comes the realization that a reasonably steady income is far more important than going to work with an elite level Premier League footballer. Even though that could be gone tomorrow, and you might be making a pittance and putting in sixty, seventy, eight hours a week. The other one then was the actual social media side of it. Some people put huge effort into growing their social media, thinking it will directly lead to income streams in, or multiple revenue streams from their coach but realistically a large following may just be that a large following and having loads of likes of engagements might just be that it doesn't it doesn't lead to like like there isn't a salary for having twenty thousand followers you do <laughs> then need to have a plan to actually yeah. turn that into money in some way absolutely i think people i think people 100 percent think that instagram or facebook pay people when you've hit a certain number. I know for a fact that people think that. Like, you get 10,000, you get, I don't know, 1% per follower. I don't know, I don't know what they think, but that is genuinely, I think, what people think. Yeah, it's um, the whole social media thing. We, we could do another two hours on the whole social media thing and how that how that is influencing what we're, what we're seeing, what we're learning and whatnot. But, um, yeah... I think people think of the recognition, again, maybe the ego coming into play first and the quality and the substance come second a lot of the time. It's about being... I, I just read something earlier and it was... I think it was an athlete's birthday that a certain coach had worked with. And it's, of course, on Twitter, it's a picture of coach and player from 10 years ago arm in arm saying happy birthday like why does it have to be that 
Well, if you're going to say happy, just say happy birthday. Or don't, because the player doesn't know who you are anymore. You've moved on. They've moved on. And just get on with your life. But it's, it's the search for likes and, and whatnot. So, it's again, we could go down a rabbit hole of talking about social media for another hour. But I don't think people will listen to me rant about that. It's like, the, it's like the Facebook happy birthday to your granny who's not on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's, there's, yeah, there's, wow, we could go on all day. <laughs> yeah, no, and we're very conscious of your time. Just on the revenue streams, it, and you say, or Des says, there's a job in every parish, but it's often about finding your niche because even to finding the jobs and to doing fitness classes, that's becoming reasonably saturated now with more people trying to do it but finding a niche area that you are particularly good at whether it be you're really good at developing speed you're really good at some form of injury prehab or whatever it may be, might be like that and finding that and pushing that is probably a better way with a level of diver- diversification there of guaranteeing some form of long-term income as opposed to spreading yourself too thin and trying to be too many things at once at the start yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if I if I wanted to, if I was on a below average salary based on what we're seeing this report, and I wanted to earn a little bit of extra money, but I wanted it to be on my terms, this is not this is genuine as well. There is a golf course about two and a half miles away from me, three miles away, and they've got I don't know eighteen bays, and they've got a coach. There's, there's a coach who's there pretty much all day in two of the bays. He has clients coming from all over the country some even fly in to see him um used to work under pete cowan who's one of the top golf um coaches in the world did internship under him set up on his own what i would do i would rent some space off him which he'd probably give me it for free rent some space off him get a squat rack get a few dumbbells get a few TRXs, get a pull-up bar, get some basic stuff, even lease it or rent it or do something. I'd tap into that golf coach and say, we'll do a discount for people that want to work on developing the drive, developing whatever it is, golf-specific stuff, golf-specific goals, and linking with him to train people. Like that, that's, To me, that's not a difficult thing to do with a little bit of outlay and a bit of a forward-thinking mentality or entrepreneurial mentality. And he's charging 60 quid an hour. So 60 quid for the half hour for golf lessons. Normal, very normal. Like, I think he's reasonable in that kind of line of work. So you get people and you go, all right, top it up to 100 quid. We can do an hour, an hour and a half strength session after you after your, uh, sorry, an hour session after your half hour golf session and we'll do both for 100 quid. Like, happy days. You're going to get people tapping into it. You've got a middle-aged market who've got more disposable income. You've got people who are coming through the day because they've either retired early, they're just so mad for it that they're taking time off work. All these kind of things come into play. But there's opportunities there if people think people think outside the box. It's also, I suppose, from the golf coach's point of view as well like there could be some people where losing 5-10 kilos could do more for their swing than he ever could just from like a logistic or from 100%. mechanics point of view and these kind of things these guys will turn up with you know 5 grand golf clubs and you know 400 quid shoes and this and a 100 quid glove and all these kind of things they're piling money into it because they've got disposable income they don't know how to spend it 
it's like the cycling community, the triathlon community, all these kind of things, like early to middle age guys and girls who have got disposable income, they just don't know where to spend it. They're buying whoop bands because they've seen Roy McElroy. They're buying this, they're buying that. Like, tap into that market, surely. Surely. That's been brilliant, Rob. Just really conscious of your time. Just to finish off, if you've any, from like speaking to an awful lot of coaches and being aware of how the industry works, what advice would you have for any people who are in college, going through it, or coming out the back end to say, what are some not SNC specific skills I should possibly look to develop that would help me, in a way, be a better coach, but more so help me get a job? I think more and more people now, recruiters, employers are looking for for it's a bit of a wanky term but cognitive diversity keeps coming up on podcasts that people that i speak to all the time people are looking for something different in their staff than what they've got and i think having that having something different that you can offer so for example if uh, snc job goes out as assistant strength and conditioning coach it's 15 grand there is hundreds of people that will fit that bill. Undergraduate, working towards UKCA, and one to three years experience, for an example. Loads of them. But if you can code, you're going up against a very different level of applicant than if you were just a coach. If you have travelled to Australia for a year and done various different visits to various different professional teams over there and have pulled together a slideshow, a PowerPoint of your all your findings, that puts you in a different league to the norm. If you have set up a local gym in line with a local golf coach and are now offering golf sessions to, to clients, that's different to the average strength and conditioning coach. So it's all these little things that can add and differentiate you from the hundreds and hundreds of who are probably going to go for that job. And it's just something different. It's been, I can't remember where I robbed this from, but I will rob it from somewhere. Be interested. So be interested in people, but also be interesting. And I think there's plenty of people who would just lack a little bit of personality. And that comes from having different experiences going to australia going like visiting people going to america going around a couple of colleges meeting people chatting with people just like living abroad i don't know do something different that's the only way you're going to stand out from the crowd as well as having a decent network as well the, the be interested is a great way to develop that network that you could 100 percent like, I assume someone was an SNC coach with Thomas Tuchel when he started coaching back in 10, 11, 12. If he got on really well with him, you could now be a Champions League winning coach just because we got on well. He knows the stuff SNC-wise. That's grand, but I just really get on with him and I keep trusting him to job, to job, to job. Trust. Yeah. Just build trust with someone and they'll, dra- they'll pull you along and you'll pull them along as well. Yeah. Rob, absolutely fantastic. You've been brilliant with your time. Do you want to give your old podcast or anything else like that a plug there or any other stuff you're you're hustling at the no, minute? Nothing to plug in, mate. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> I, I appreciate your time. Thank you for asking me to come on. Thanks a million, Rob. Thanks that was million, great. Rob.